I think it'd be good just for the sake of those who haven't been here, just to do a quick summary of where we're up to in this book of 2 Corinthians. So we've been going through this, this book now for a few weeks, and our overall theme in this book has been having strength in the presence of weakness, and primarily that strength coming through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in each chapter, we've been dealing with different aspects of that. In chapter 1, there was an introduction to uh, what was going on in the Corinthian church and Paul's ministry. In chapter 2, Paul talked about his credentials as a leader and the fact that he wanted the Corinthian church to be a restoring church for those who'd fallen into sin in the church there. In chapter 3, he talked about the new covenant and the glorious wonders of that. And then in chapter 4, he spoke about the realities of having treasure within this earthen vessel, our bodies, and the fact that that guarantees us to be in heaven one day. And then over the last few weeks, we've been speaking from chapter 5 about that wonderful reality of what Jesus has done for us at the cross, that at the cross... He took upon himself the debt of sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. And so we come to chapter 6, and John was speaking last week about the three things that can potentially stop us from maturing in the Lord. And I think it's really good just to sort of lay out what's going to happen in the rest of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, to just briefly reflect on verses 11 to 13 again. John spoke on these verses at the end of his sermon last week, and he spoke about the reality of needing to have gospel-centered relationships with each other, and when we neglect those, we can not mature in our relationship with the Lord. But if you remember in verse 11, Paul said of himself and his ministry team that they had always spoken the truth to the Corinthian believers from their mouths. And they'd always had a heart that was wide open to the Corinthian believers. They were ready to embrace the Corinthian believers at any point in love. But then in verse 12, Paul said that that was not the same for the Corinthian believers, that they were restricted in their relationship with Paul and his team because of their affections. And the word for affections there is where we get the Uh, the Greek idea for the bowels. And at that time in history, people thought that your deepest desires came from this part of your body, strangely enough. Um, But this is what was happening. They were being controlled by their affections through the influence of false teachers. And because of that, in verse 13, Paul seems to imply that their hearts were closed. Their hearts were closed to Paul and to his ministry. And so therefore, in verse 13, Paul is exhorting the Corinthian believers as a spiritual father to his spiritual children to be open with him as he is open with them. And he's doing that because he wants to ready these believers for what he is about to say to them through the rest of this chapter. Now, Paul in the rest of chapter 6, is going to deal with an issue that was a real problem for the Corinthian believers. He's going to talk about something that the Corinthian believers don't want to talk about. He's going to talk about the elephant in the room. 
that everyone knows is there, but no one really wants to say anything. And I don't know whether you've been in a relationship before where you know that you have issues in that relationship, and both parties know what the problem is, but no one is saying anything. I've been in relationships like that before, where for years and years and years, there was an issue there that was not talked about. And because of that, there was great damage and great problems. But you see, Paul is not like that. Paul is not willing to let this issue go. As the apostle that planted this church, and as a caring pastor who loves his flock, he is willing to talk about the difficult things. Paul is wanting to end the suffering that is there in his relationship with the Corinthian believers. He wants to reconcile with these Corinthian believers in an issue that he doesn't have to reconcile with them about. Because as we'll see as we go along, they were in the wrong and not Paul. And you see, when someone does that, brothers and sisters, they have to be filled with the Spirit. When someone wants to reconcile with someone else when it's not really their responsibility, that is God. Because that's the heart of God. The heart of God is to bring reconciliation in a situation where he doesn't have to do so. I mean, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news of Jesus that God came to the earth as a man and he brought reconciliation potentially for all men and women at the cross and he didn't have to do that? That is the heart of God. And you see, Paul is demonstrating that same heart in this passage. So what was the issue? Well, we see the issue at the beginning of verse 14, where Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, before I get into what Paul is implying in this statement, we have to th speak about two principles that come out from this. The first thing is, what is Paul thinking of when he's speaking of being yoked together? Well, what he's thinking about is basically farming or agriculture. And in the Old Testament and at that time in the New Testament, there was a farming implement called a yoke. And what that would do is it would join two animals together and keep them joined together and they would walk along the field and they would basically drag along a farming appliance like a plow to enable the farmer to do his work. And it was very important when you had that yoke that you had animals of the same breed because that would make the yoke equal so that the plow would go in a straight line and do what it was meant to do. It was not looked favorably upon when you used animals of different breeds because the yoke would be unequal. And that would mean that the plow would not go in a straight line and it would not do what it was meant to do. God spoke about this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, when he said, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Very simply, because if you do that, it, the yoke is unequal and it will be not good for your farming. You will not get what you want from your agriculture if you do that. And this is what Paul's thinking of when he says being yoked together. Now, the other principle that we have to bring out is something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, where he said the following. He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so what you see Jesus saying here is that when people go to him, they take his yoke upon them. And I believe that what this is referring to is the reality that when someone responds to the gospel, when they see that they're sinners, they believe that Jesus died for their sins, and they are born again, they, in a sense, spiritually take the yoke of Christ. They are joined with Christ for his purposes. I don't believe this is something we fully understand when we are born again. We grow in it. As it says there, we have to learn of Jesus, that he's gentle and he's lowly. We have to learn that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But the principle is this, that when you are born again, you take on the yoke of Christ. You used to be yoked with sin, but now you're yoked with Jesus. Now, Evidently, what was happening in the Corinthian church was that some of the believers there, maybe all of them, I don't really know, were potentially yoking themselves together with unbelievers. What does that mean? Well, what they were doing was they were neglecting their yoke with Christ and they were putting themselves in a yoke with an unbeliever under that believer's authority, under their mindset, under their purposes in life. Different Bible scholars debate about how this was happening in the Corinthian church. Some believe it was because the Corinthians were marrying unbelievers, potentially. Some Bible scholars think it was just because they were aligning themselves with false teachers. I don't really know, but what I do know is that they were neglecting their yoke with Christ and joining themselves to the yoke of an unbeliever. And we have to see, brothers and sisters, that when... Believers do that because we can do that in our lives. It can happen in many ways. We can be yoked to an unbeliever in a particular sport, for example. We can be yoked with an unbeliever if we commit sexual immorality with them. We can be yoked with an unbeliever if we have the same mindset in business that they have. And we have to see that when we do this, nothing good comes from it. I mean, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, it says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So what can happen when you yoke yourself with an unbeliever? You can corrupt your relationship with God. You can corrupt the good habits that have been produced in your relationship with God. And if you take that to its extreme, you can begin to not desire God anymore, but desire the world desire what that unbeliever wants, who you're yoked with. And in James chapter 4, verse 4, it speaks very soberly about that. It says, they're adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is extremely sobering, that you can be in this situation as a believer where you're yoked with Jesus, you neglect that and you yoke yourself with an unbeliever and you begin to want the world. You begin to want to be a friend with the world again and you make yourself an enemy of God. Sobering stuff. You were a friend of Jesus, now you're becoming an enemy. 
But even worse than that, when we unequally yoke ourselves with unbelievers, going back to our farming example, you yoke yourself unequally with someone. And what you do is you, in a sense, quench what God wants to do in your life. You grieve his purposes. His purposes go off kilter. You're no longer being used of God in seeing people come to Christ, necessarily. You're no longer potentially being used of God to grow the church in righteousness and in holiness. So I think we can see that doing this, yoking yourself unequally with an unbeliever coming underneath their authority, underneath their purposes, underneath their mindset of life, it never does anything good for you as a believer. Now, when this happens, God takes it very seriously. He takes it very seriously because of what he's created each one of you to be in Christ Jesus. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says there, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what this shows is that when you're saved, you're not just saved to be right with God, to be forgiven. You are saved to be part of how God is working out in this world, taking the gospel to the nations. You are part of God's work in growing the church. And when he sees something in your life that hinders that from happening, he takes it very, very seriously. And he wants to sort it out. He wants to remove that thing from your life. Does he do it in a harsh way where you're damaged forever? Well, I would say no. God knows that we are weak. He knows that we are sinners. He knows that we are but flesh. He knows that we make mistakes as Christians. And his heart, when he sees this kind of thing happening, is to bring us back, to remove that hindrance from our life. And in many ways, the Corinthians are the perfect example of this. I mean, the Corinthians were born-again believers. They lacked no gift, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. But yet they were a carnal church. They were allowing themselves to come under false teachers. But what do we see happening here? We see God beginning to restore them. God beginning to bring them back to a place of fruitfulness. He wants to remove this hindrance of being yoked with unbelievers. God has promised us, and he had promised the Corinthian believers, that when he starts a good work in someone, he finishes it. God has promised us and these Corinthian believers that he will sanctify us through and through, spirit, soul, and body, to keep us blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. It is his heart to remove every single hindrance from our life that stops us from being fruitful. And this is what he's doing today through Paul. A good way of thinking about this is how we relate to our children. If you don't have children in here, you'll know what I'm talking about when you do have children. <laughs> when you have children, they are a blessing. They are a gift from God. They make you smile. They bring joy to your life. But you also see that they are sinners. That they get things wrong. That they make mistakes. That they rebel against you. And they actually hurt you. This is what you see. But when they do that, what do you do? Do you go up to them and say, sorry, I don't want anything more to do with you. 
That's one mistake too many. I don't want a relationship with you anymore. You don't do that, do you? You go up to them, you want to reconcile with them. Whether it's through a rebuke, discipline, or encouragement, your desire is to bring that child back to a place where they can walk in their life fruitfully. And if we do that, as sinners, how much more does God do that who's perfect? Yes, God is a perfect heavenly father. And whenever you make a mistake in your life as a believer, what I want you to think is not first, I'm in trouble, God's going to leave me. No, God wants to reconcile you. Just remember that. It's a very key thing that many, many Christians don't understand. So, getting into our verses a bit more deeply now, what we're going to see in the rest of this section is we're going to see reasons why we must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers and reasons why we must remain yoked with Christ. The first reason is in basically verses 14 to 16. I'm going to read those again. It says there, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, I want you to see that Paul is asking a series of questions here, and he's comparing different extremes. And he's wanting to see whether these extremes have any similarity. Firstly, he compares the extreme of morality, where he compares righteousness and lawlessness. And he says, do they have fellowship, which means do they have anything common in sharing? Then he compares light with darkness, and that could just be physical light, physical darkness, or it could be comparing different kingdoms because the kingdom of Jesus is the kingdom of light and the kingdom of the devil is the kingdom of darkness. And he says, do they have any communion? Which basically means the same thing. Do they share anything in common? Then he compares, I would say, the extremes of authority. He speaks of Christ and then he speaks of this person called Belial, which is basically a name for the devil. In Greek, it means worthless one. And he says, do they have a call? Do they agree with each other? Then he compares extremes of faith. He speaks about a believer and an unbeliever, and he says, do they have any part with each other? Again, do they share anything in common? And then he compares extremes of worship, because he talks about the temple of God and the temple of idols. And he says again, do they have any agreement? Now, there's a few things that we can get from these questions. Definitely, I would say that following on from the logic of what Paul's saying at the beginning of verse 14, he's comparing the identity of a Christian with a non-Christian. A Christian is one who's in righteousness, who's in light, who's under the authority of Christ, who's a believer and worships in a temple of God. But then an unbeliever is one who practices lawlessness, who's under darkness, who's under the devil, who is an unbeliever and worships idols. But how do we answer these questions? How do we know what the answer is to what he's saying here? Well, the only way you can answer these questions is by looking at the scriptures, the fountain of truth. And when you survey the scriptures, what you find is, is that God, listen, is a God that does not like it when you try to mix different things together when he wants there to be a distinction. I'll say that again. God is a God who does not like it when we mix different things together to say they're the same 
when God wants a distinction. I mean, we see this in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.19, it says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. He then develops that further in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 9, when he says, You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you've sown and the fruit of the vineyard be defiled. And so what he's saying there is he's saying when you mix things together that are different, where God wants a distinction, it brings a defilement. Why is that? Well, it's because it does not represent the character of God well. God is not a God of mixtures. God is a God of black and white. With God, there is no grayness. God is always righteous. He is always in the light. God is always the one in authority. He is always the one that would promote faith. He is always the one that is to be worshipped. It's, it's obvious from the scriptures that God is not a God of mixture. He's black and white about these things. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, look, if you guys know this, why on earth are you trying to mix yourself and yoke yourself under the authority of an unbeliever. You guys are children of God. You are righteous. You are in the light. You are under Christ. You are believers and you worship in the temple of God. Why on earth are you trying to yoke yourself with someone that isn't in that place? This is what Paul's challenging the Corinthian believers on in this particular section. Jesus is the perfect example at living out this kind of distinctive kind of life. And we see this in John chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, where it says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And in John chapter 2, Jesus has just kind of cleansed the temple. He's in Jerusalem, he's doing signs and wonders, and, he, and, and it says this thing about Jesus. And what does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus knew that in man was sin. He needed no one to tell him that, and because of that fact, he did not entrust himself to man. What was Jesus doing? He was keeping a distinction there between himself and sinful human beings. Jesus lived out this reality of keeping distinctives, not mixing things together where there needs to be that distinction. Now, many Christians take this kind of principle to an extreme. Have you met Christians before that will say that they will not talk with unbelievers? That they will kind of separate themselves from all of normal life and create communities? I haven't got anything against community living, by the way, but... We see examples of this in America and in this country where Christians are so scared about mixing with unbelievers that they feel they have to separate themselves. But what do we see Jesus doing? Even though Jesus made this distinction, he ate food with sinners, he spoke with sinners, he was a friend of sinners. Why? Because he wanted people to get saved. And this is the example that Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to follow and he wants us to follow that we are to be in the world but not of the world. As, he said, as Jesus said in John chapter 17, we are called to interact with unbelievers. We are called to befriend them, to love them, to show them the love of Christ, but we are not, and I repeat, we're not, to come under their negative authority, their mindset, 
their purposes in life. And when we live out that reality of being in the world but not of it, we are truly the salt of the earth. Our lives will look distinctively different from unbelievers. They will taste different, and unbelievers will either like it or they won't. But who cares? We'll be able to speak about Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants for our lives. He wants our lives to be distinctive so that we can speak about the person that's producing that distinctive life, Jesus Christ. And so we see here that the first reason why we must not yoke ourselves with unbelievers but remain in that yoke we have with Christ is because our identity in Christ should reflect the character of God. That God is a God that wants distinction where he wants that distinction. So he goes on into our next section in the rest of verse 16 to verse 18. And I'm just going to read that again. It says, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, in this section... Paul is using a lot of verses from the Old Testament. And you can look them up later on if you uh, have footnotes in your Bible. But the key thing is to see is that these um, quotes here are not uh, quoted word for word from the Old Testament. What Paul's doing is he's taking lots, lots of verses in the Old Testament and he's joining them together to bring about specific points that he wants to bring about. So the first point he speaks of is that he says that we are the temple of the living God. He then says, as God has said. So what he's speaking there is that in the Old Testament, God has spoken some truth about the reality that we are the temple of the living God. And in this first little quote where it says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, he's bringing forth the method by which we enter into this temple of the living God and how we are maintained in that temple of the living God. When it says that I will dwell in them, what that's referring to is very simply the new birth. That reality that when we respond to the gospel, when we believe that Jesus died for our sins, the Holy Spirit comes to take residence within our hearts, and I believe that when he does that, it is forever and ever. And that is what allows us to become in a sense, a temple of the living God, the Spirit, but also to enter into the collective temple of the living God. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Speaking of that reality, that it's the fact that the Spirit is in us that we are now called the temple of the living God. And if someone is going to be in heaven one day, if someone's going to be in the kingdom of God, they have to have this happen to them. They have to have the spirit of the living God come and dwell in their hearts. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this is an incredible reality, brothers and sisters. This is a wonderful blessing. That if you are a believer in here today, 
You have the very presence of God within you. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. It is an incredible blessing, an incredible result, I would say, of the new covenant. I don't believe that people in the Old Testament were born again. And so much so that the Old Testament prophets in 1 Peter chapter 1 said they wanted to be part of the new covenant because they wanted the spirit of the living God dwelling in them forever. It's a wonderful thing, an incredible thing. He goes on and he says that God will walk among them. And when he speaks of that, he's speaking of not so much the individual reality that we are uh, temples of the Holy Spirit, but the collective reality that when we become believers, we enter into a spiritual house. In 1 Peter 2, it says that we all who are born again are living stones, living stones joined together to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, in the, under the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we see the reality of God walking amongst us in that spiritual house by the Spirit working what he wants when he wills. By sustaining us, by growing us, by distributing gifts of the Spirit for the benefit of the church. And of course, when this happens, when we have that individual experience and we have that collective experience, as it says there, God is our God and we are his people. Do you know this morning that God is your God? That you are a child of God in this place this morning, not because of any works that you've done, but because of faith in Jesus Christ. Because of what he has done for you on the cross. And because Jesus went to the cross, he rose again from the dead on the third day. He's given his spirit now. You are able, having put your faith in Christ, to be born again. To have that living relationship with the Lord. It's an incredible blessing. The emphasis that Paul's wanting to get at in this statement is the fact that this reality of us being born again and us having that collective experience of God walking amongst us is his work alone. Where it says dwell there and walk there in the Greek, the way that's written is to emphasize the fact that it's God's work. And what I want you to learn from that is that you cannot dictate to God when you're born again. It's God's work. You cannot dictate to him when you should be born again. But also the fact that he walks amongst us, that is his work. We cannot dictate to the spirit of the living God what he does within the church. It's his work according to his will. It's his. We have to live under that sovereignty as we walk in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, therefore, he goes on in verse 17, and he, he speaks of, what we should do in response to having this great, wonderful reality of being born again and being part of this temple of the living God. He says there, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And what he's speaking there is he's speaking that there's two things as Christians that we should do in response to being given the new birth and being part of the church. The first thing is that we should come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And those two phrases, come out and be separate, basically mean the same thing. They mean creating a boundary between you and someone else. A boundary that you will not walk across. A boundary that keeps you safe. 
And what he's saying there is he's saying that I want you to have a boundary between yourself and unbelievers so that you do not unequally yoke yourself with them. Again, it's important to see how these words are written in the Greek because where it says come out, the emphasis in the Greek is upon us doing that, our personal responsibility to create that boundary. But then when he says be separate, the way that's written in the Greek, it means that we have to receive something that's already been provided for us. So not only do we have to actively make that boundary, but we have to receive that God has made that boundary already for us by the Spirit. He also says there, do not touch what is unclean, which means that we are, as Christians, having been born again, not supposed to attach ourselves to any sinful practice. That doesn't mean that we're not free from the presence of sin as Christians because we live in a sinful world and sinful bodies, but we, through the blood of Jesus Christ, can say no to sin. We don't have to be under its authority anymore. And because of that, God says, I don't want you to touch anything that is unclean. And when we do that, when we do those two things, brothers and sisters, there is a consequence to that. When we do what God tells us to do, God does something for us. And what God does for us is in verse 17 and verse 18 where it says, and I will receive you. And when he says, I will receive you there, the way that's written in the Greek, it means that God will receive us and bless us abundantly. He will have favor upon us abundantly if we are obedient to the reality of not yoking ourselves unequally with unbelievers. And what is the blessing? Well, that's in verse 18. It says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So listen, this is the blessing. The blessing is not money. The blessing is not an easy life. The blessing when you are obedient to God in these two things, when you don't attach yourself to sin or unequally yoke yourself with unbelievers, the blessing is a fruitful relationship with God as your father. That is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to bless you in this area. This is God's heart. This is, what, this is in a sense, the wonderful glory of being created, that we can have the opportunity to know our creator. You are not going to know a greater blessing, brothers and sisters, other than knowing God. You might think that you can be blessed when you have money, when you've got a good job, maybe even a good ministry, but actually the real blessing is knowing God as your Father. Knowing that you are His child, that He's died for you, He's forgiven your sin, and He has put your, His Spirit in you forever. That is the greatest blessing that you can ever live out in your life. And this is what He wants to do in us being obedient to not being attached to sin and not unequally yoking ourselves with unbelievers. And I believe he wants to bless us specifically in two ways, and we see that in these verses as well. The first thing is that God wants to bless us in our relationship with him by us having the right priorities. Do you know that it's God's desire for him to be your number one priority in your life? God wants to be number one in your life. God does not want your wife to be number one. He doesn't want your children to be number one. He doesn't want your work to be number one. He doesn't want your 
sporting allegiances to be number one, for example. He wants to be number one. God has always wanted to be the number one priority for human beings ever since the Garden of Eden. That is why God gave Adam that command to not eat of the fruit, because he wanted to see whether Adam had the right priorities, whether God was number one in Adam's heart. God wants this. Why does he want this? Well, it's because he is jealous for our attention. Not that God needs our attention, but he's jealous for our attention. As children of God, God wants us to have our attention on him. It speaks of this in James chapter 4, verse 5, where it says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? This means that God is jealous for your attention as his child. This truth was really honed in at me when I started to have children in my life. There are times when me and Emma and the boys are together, and the boys are literally all over Emma. They just want to hug Emma, they just want to spend time with her, and I'm there and I'm thinking, what about me? You know? I want you to want me, boys. What is that? That's me being jealous for their attention. And again, I'm a sinner and I have that feeling, but God is perfect. He has a perfect jealousy for your attention and he wants your priorities to be him because he's jealous for you. God loves you so much. He wants to spend time with you so much that he's jealous. Do you know that when you get up in the morning, God wants to spend time with you more than you want to spend time with God? Do you know that when you pray to God, God wants to speak to you more than you want to speak to God? And God wants to speak to you through his word more than you want to hear from him. An incredible truth. We should pray more that we understand this truth so that we can walk in it. So we see, brothers and sisters, that that's the first blessing that God wants to bring forth. But the second blessing is that he wants to bless us in our relationship with him so that we are fruitful. And I, I say this specifically from verse 17 again. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 6 is from Isaiah 52, verse 11. And in Isaiah 52, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he's saying that uh, he's going to take them out of captivity. He's going to take them back to their land. In, in Isaiah 52, verse 11, it says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And so what God is saying to Israel in this verse is he's saying, look, you guys, you bear the very presence of God. And because you bear the very presence of God, you are my light to the nations. You're the light to the Gentiles. And because of that, I want you to be holy. I want you to be clean. I want you to come out of the influence of unbelievers because I want my presence to be manifested in you in a powerful way so that people can be drawn to the nation of Israel. When they didn't do this, when they were unclean, the presence of the Lord dwindled and their witness to the Gentile nations went downhill. And you see, this is the same for us. We now are those in the new covenant that are the vessels of the Lord. 
You are a vessel that God wants to use via his Holy Spirit to draw people to himself. And you see, when you are living in that reality of not attaching yourself to sin, having that clear boundary between you and unbelievers that you will not step over, there is no hindrance to God's Spirit. And God's Spirit is likely to use you more for his glory. He's likely to use you more to be fruitful. The opposite is true for those who don't listen to this command. I mean, in the parable of the sower, you had that soil, didn't you, where the seed grew up with the weeds? Do you remember that? That's a reflection of someone who's got a foot in both camps, a foot in the church and a foot in the world. And as the seed of the Word of God grows up, weeds grow up as well, and those weeds quench the seed and it becomes unfruitful. If we choose to yoke ourselves with unbelievers and attach ourselves to sin, it's like those weeds growing up. They will quench what God wants to do. They will, in a sense, make you unfruitful. And God doesn't want that. God wants every single one of you, listen, to be fruitful for his kingdom. And that's why he's given this command for us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, because he wants no hindrance to his spirit in all of your hearts. This is what God wants to do. He wants to bless us as we follow this command not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Anyway, coming to the end of our message today, verse 1 of chapter 7, if you turn there with me. I'm just going to read that again. It says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so in this last verse, we see, in a sense, the last reason why we must not be yoked unequally with unbelievers and we must remain in that yoke that we have with Christ. And that is because God wants to change us. God has promised us as believers to change us from the inside out. The first word that we have to focus on in this verse is that word cleanse. Can you see that word there? Now that word cleanse in the Greek basically means to be clean. It, needs, it means to be spotless from any dirt. And what we have to do to understand what Paul's speaking about here is to kind of take a slight sidetrack from the, from the text today and think about a theological doctrine. And that is what the Scriptures teach about being clean before God. You could say being righteous before God. Now, when you survey the New Testament Scriptures, you see that there are two types of righteousness that we as believers have, or two types of cleanliness that we have. The first one is a positional righteousness, or a positional cleanliness. And that is given to us, listen, when we respond to the gospel. When you see that you're a sinner, you believe in Jesus, that he's your saviour, and you're born again, God justifies you. He says, that person is rendered innocent before me. And what he does is he sees that the blood of Christ washes away all of your sin from his sight. And you're given the gift of righteousness. And you must understand that that is simply by faith. It's not by any works. You are given that position of righteousness and being clean before God by faith. That's your positional righteousness, your positional cleanliness. 
But then there's another type of righteousness, another type of cleanliness, which I would say is practical righteousness or practical cleanliness, which is where your positional righteousness is worked out in your life to become more evident. And we see that this verse is speaking about our practical righteousness, our practical cleanliness in our life. It speaks there, it says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. And what that is referring to is the work of God sanctifying you from the inside out the moment you become a born-again believer. When you are born again, the spirit goes into your heart, listen, and he begins to work in your heart to identify sin, to deal with sin, and as long as we are cooperating with the Spirit in repentance and faith, that sin will be dealt with, we will be free from it, it will be washed away, and we will begin to walk more in righteousness and holiness. And as we do that, as it says there, we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That means as we are being sanctified in our lives, we are bringing to completion moral purity, That word for perfecting there means to bring something to completion. Holiness there speaks of moral purity. And we do that in the fear of God, which is having a reverence or a respect for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' life gives us a, a wonderful picture of this reality. Jesus, when he came to the earth, he was perfect, wasn't he? He was without sin. Jesus has always been righteous from eternity past and he always will be to eternity future. He came to the earth like that. But what happened? He came as a baby, didn't he? And he grew up into a boy, then to a teenager, then to a man. And of course, when he was 33, he went to the cross. And what you see in Jesus' life is that that wonderful, perfect righteousness that he had forever begins to be worked out in his life more and more as he grows up. It says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was perfected by the things that he suffered. And you see in Jesus' life, by what, what he suffered, the evidence came out of his perfect righteousness. And that's a beautiful picture of what God does in us. God, when we're saved, gives us perfect righteousness in eternity. But as we go through life, he works that righteousness out in our life so that we can glorify him. Hallelujah. An incredible reality. This is what God calls not just spiritual Christians to, or those guys that are really mature. It's for every single one of you in here today who believes in Jesus Christ. God wants to change you from the inside out. He wants to make you more like Jesus. He wants to free you from sin. He wants to free you from those habits that you've had for years and years and years. Maybe there are some of you in here today who are struggling with some kind of sin and you don't know how to deal with it. Well, God wants to deal with it. Let me encourage you in that, brother. Let me encourage you in that, sister, that all you need to do is acknowledge that sin before God, believe that you are forgiven and you have that positional righteousness, and trust that God will show you what to do to deal with that sin. Now, Paul, in this verse, is bringing this up because he knows that when you have that temptation to be unequally yoked with unbelievers or unequally yoked to anything that's not good, this particular thing that God wants to do gets slowed down. 
It gets grieved. It gets quenched. I mean, have you ever noticed that in your life as a believer where you have a love for something uh, and that love for something stops you from pursuing God? It stops you from seeking God for him to change you. I mean, I'll give you an example from my, from my life. Uh, about two years ago, I became uh, a Manchester United fan. I thought that would get a few boos, so I, I just wanted to get it out. It was, a f- it was a family decision, so don't throw tomatoes at me. But over these last two years, there's been seasons where I've sensed myself being drawn to want to watch every Manchester United game, to find out what's going on on the website and what transfers are going through, and that stops me from pursuing God. And I've had to be like, Lord, you know, I, I know there's nothing wrong with me supporting the best team in England, but, <laughs> but, but I need to not be loving this as much as I love you. And Paul's like, look, you guys, you need to realize, look, we've been given this promise that we are the people of God. We've been given this promise that God wants to bless us. Therefore, let us pursue this. This is what he's saying. Let us cleanse ourselves, perfecting holiness. The emphasis there is on them pursuing uh, this reality because he knows that they're being tempted not to do so because they're being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so we see that the third reason why we must not be yoked with unbelievers but be yoked with Christ is because we do not want to slow down the sanctification process that God wants to produce in our lives. So we've seen today, brothers and sisters, that God has always got a heart to restore and to remove every hindrance from our lives to fruitfulness. And we've seen specifically today that we must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers in whatever way that is because it will not produce anything good. We've seen today that God wants us to reflect his character. He wants to bless us and he wants to change us. And to promote that in our lives, let us remain in that yoke of Christ. Amen.